0: I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. We are so glad you're with us. We are uh, still in the thick of the legislative session. As you are uh, listening, we have two more weeks to go. Uh, And then veto day at the end of March. So a lot going on there and we will give an update on all those happenings at the end of the legislative session for today. We're going to step back into a topic that we have covered frequently on faith and politics, something that is near and dear to our hearts. It is the topic of education. We talk about being a well-formed citizen and that formation that really just helps us be great citizens um, it doesn't happen, you know is when you can when you can vote or you know maybe you start getting interested in politics when you're when you're older as an adult. it really, that formation that we need to be great citizens happens um, just as little kids. I know that was certainly true for me in uh, in Catholic school in Sioux Falls, in the Scouts, so many different great formation opportunities. So today we're going to talk about Catholic education, micro schools in particular. I am pleased to welcome to the program our guest today. Dr. Kevin Baxter. Dr. Baxter is at the Alliance for Catholic Education at the University of Notre Dame. He is the director of the Mary Ann Remick Leadership Program. He oversees there the formation of Catholic school leaders and also teaches as a a professor. Students in the Remick Leadership Program earn a master's degree in educational leadership as they learn to build robust Catholic school communities, advance teaching and learning, and manage school resources. Dr. Baxter has had a long career dedicated to serving students, teachers, and principals in Catholic schools. Over the span of more than 20 years, he's taught middle and high school math and science, served as an assistant principal, uh, principal and superintendent of elementary schools, and in 2015 became superintendent of schools in the nation's largest Catholic archdiocese. It's the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and more than 265 schools. 77,500 students at NCEA, where he's been for a couple of years now. Dr. Baxter has developed the new leaders Academy, a leadership formation program for new Catholic school principals. And he's also focused on reform initiatives in governance and school finance. The book we're going to be talking about today. He co-wrote greatness in smallness, a vision for Catholic micro schools, which looks to shift the paradigm on how to evaluate schools based on enrollment size. He collaborated with, ACE, that's the Alliance for Catholic Education, uh, on LEAD, a new initiative designed to increase Latino leadership in Catholic schools. And after the pandemic struck, Dr. Baxter works on converting the NCEA offerings to virtual programming as something I think we're all used to now at this point, the the, the virtual world. Speaking of, we're connecting uh, via Zoom. So Dr. Baxter, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, taking the time to connect.
1: Thanks, Chris. Great to be with you.
0: Well, as I was sharing before we went on the air, I read this book Um, and I was just so taken with it. This, uh, the book is again, once more greatness in smallness, a vision for Catholic micro schools. And I was so taken with it because I think, you know, there's just a, it seems that we're in as Pope Francis has put it. Um, I, we're not, it's not a change of the ages, but we're in an age of change or something like that. We're in it. We're in a time of kind of shifting paradigms. So to see, uh, a book dedicated to real creative thought, um on you know how are we doing education as catholics as people that are just desiring to 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 form future missionary disciples the term we love here in the diocese sioux falls a wonderful book so i'm i'm excited to dig into it today maybe just to start us out how did the idea for the book uh come about what was sort of the 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 seed of it if you will
1: well, it's, um, it's an interesting story because I, I um, for much of my career, especially when I was superintendent of Los Angeles, um, we had a vision of growth. Our our idea was really that, and obviously we still want this, right? We want more kids in Catholic schools. We want to serve more students. We want to bring more students to the faith and, and educate in faith. We believe that system is uh, is really the best for, for students. And so we want to see as many kids enrolled as possible. When I started at NCEA, I was look, I was a chief innovation officer was my title, and so I was looking at some things to do, and and I I got uh, the total enrollment for all the schools uh, across the country about sixty six thousand, maybe sixty two hundred Catholic schools across the country, and I was really surprised to find out when that data came back that that over fifteen hundred had hundred and fifty students or less, meaning uh, a full quarter of the quarter of this uh, quarter of the schools were, were under enrolled. The vast majority of those schools, I don't think, were small intentionally. They were suffering from, a lot of Catholic schools have suffered from, over the past um, number of years, declining enrollment um, and, 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 small class, and small size. Um, the result of that is that we've seen school closures, and that's tragic, and that's sad t- any time that has to take place. And so we started to talk about it and think about it. And realized that we there were examples of schools that were sustaining themselves, even though they had low enrollment. And we thought if we could start to shift the paradigm thinking a little bit, um, not that we don't want to grow, but that if we wanted to maintain this enrollment, we could save Catholic schools or some Catholic schools um, if they could just start to think about that sustainability at 150, 125, even a hundred students, um, um, that could really shift the thinking for a lot of schools across the country. So that was the impetus for the work. Um, it became a book after um, kind of a security process because we were originally just gonna do some supports and try to think about some programs and, and it turned into a kind of a handbook to kind of launch the uh, launch the initiative.
0: Well, I like having the handbook as you put it, cause now it's like, it's marked up, it's on the shelf, it's easy to go back to. So wonderful, wonderful product. I'm glad you guys put it together. And maybe a working definition for us too, because we've used this phrase "micro school," and we kind of okay, one hundred and fifty,
1: hundred. How do you define a micro school? So we would not define a micro school in size necessarily. I think mm. what we would like to say about a micro school is it's not just simply a small school. Um, it's it's we we would say a micro school is something that is intentionally small, and when we say intentionally, it means they are they are structuring their academic program, their operations, all of those pieces around um, a smaller student population. And so um, we kind of go through the different, um, you know, standards and benchmarks to the, the Nesbq's we call them um, and kind of talk about how each one of those can, can work in this type of environment. But we know uh, a micro school in one environment might be different i mean as far as enrollment size might be different than somewhere else and so you might have 175 students and feel like you're a micro school (laughs) you might have 80 kids in another environment and feel like you're a micro school so we don't we don't try to gauge it by enrollment numbers we just what we want people to know is um you can't just kind of flip a switch and think you're a micro school it really only works if you're intentional about all of those different activities that you have to do in order to create that sustainability
0: and I, so I realized I've used this acronym, uh, NCEA. And just for listeners that don't know what that is, it's a National Catholic Education Association. It's kind of a combination of trade organization and think tank. Is that a fair description?
1: Sure. Um, yeah. Convener, convener yeah, of uh, co- Catholic Educators. Right. Press they account.
0: put on great conferences and and doing great work. So one of the, you know, as we're kind of thinking about maybe a, a paradigm shift, can you describe what are some of the the features of the current paradigm that can be the friction points for schools as they may be, you know, trying to maintain or, or losing enrollment in ways that are really uncomfortable for them. What are those features of, of the current model?
1: Sure. And I think it's, um, I mean, they're structural and they're also attitudinal. Yeah. So let me um, maybe from, a, from a few different perspectives. Um, one could be from like a pastor, maybe even a bishop's perspective of enrollment being the indicator of school success. Yes. You might look at a school and say, they've got 150 students and that, and they must not be doing very well because their enrollment's low. That's been the traditional kind of view, right? Because yeah. if you're doing really well, wouldn't more kids be enrolled? Well, what we wanna kind of think about a little bit more uh, intentionally is if you have 150 students, that tells you something. But what would tell me even more is where were you Five years ago. Uh, Now, if you tell me five years ago you were at 225 students, I would be concerned. That means you've actually dropped enrollment pretty significantly over those five years. So, what's going on there? But if you were at about 140 or even 155 years ago and you're maintaining where you are, that would tell me something slightly different. So, the paradigm shift is around let's not just look at enrollment at a school as an indicator a sole indicator of success um and so that's one audience i would say the other audience i think that's really important here um, would be maybe philanthropy and and sometimes donors and funders of of catholic schools and they would seek um a metric of enrollment as an indicator of success and so they might give a a gift a grant to a school and then they'd want to see um the enrollment increase over a certain period of time. And what we would encourage them to think about is is look at other measures, because obviously faith formation, Catholic identity, academic outputs, all of those types of pieces. Can you look at measures that are beyond that? Um, And then I, I think the financial piece is really, really important because we talked about the definition. I think the one key definition for us too is that a micro school doesn't need to raise significant funds beyond what a traditional Catholic school would have to raise. Now, every single Catholic school that I've ever really been a part of has to fundraise, right? They all have their fundraisers, and they want to they want to raise uh, funds to help support the school. So, we would expect a micro school to have those same behaviors or same um, programs that that a, that a traditional Catholic school would have, but they wouldn't have to get resources and funding in addition to that. So that financial piece is really, really important when we're thinking about um, sustainability. So as we're
0: kind of thinking about, well, you know, it's not really about enrollment numbers per se, but an attitudinal shift. One of the things I like too in the book that you kind of walk through some of the practical tools that can just sort of help facilitate in a really practical way. Two of the phrases that's that stuck out at me were split classroom, and multi-age classroom as as really legitimate options that, that can be employed either temporarily or in a, in a permanent way. Can you explain what those terms mean?
1: Sure. And I, what I would actually say uh, is uh, split classroom or multi-age instruction. I think that, ah. um, and, and, and here's the difference. We use the term split classroom. You can sometimes hear some diocese say combined classes, um, and this is something that has historically happened um, as Catholic schools lose enrollment. And what a principal and maybe a pastor would tend to do is they'd say, oh, we only have, you know, 10, 12 kids in third grade. And maybe we've got 10, 12 kids in fourth grade. Let's put those classes together. And what's happened in some schools when that happens is a teacher's there, but they're teaching two separate curriculums. You almost can picture the classroom divided in half and they're teaching third grade math and then they teach fourth grade math and they have the fourth graders doing the fourth grade and the third grade going the third that could be what we'd call a split classroom those that approach is often seen as being desperate by parents um, sometimes parents will leave the school because they think that's not really sustainable and they're worried about the future health of the school and so in the book what we really try to talk about in terms of multi-age instruction is thinking about what what maybe people listening can most um, easily picture as that traditional one-room schoolhouse, when we had a variety of different grade levels in one room. And each student can receive um, uh, curriculum and content and and teaching that's on their specific level. And so a multi-age, instructional classroom is going to um, have one teacher with all of the students um, kind of grouped in ability in terms of where they are academically and then receiving content delivery um, at their level so they can experience growth and and grow at their own pace. And so the multi-age instructional approach is not a temporary approach. That would be something that you would want to commit to. You'd want to make sure you have your teachers well-trained in how to deliver it. And it's not something that you would necessarily do away with, even if you had a few few more students come into the classroom. If you had a combined uh, combined classroom or a split classroom and you had additional students come in and you could separate them, you would instantaneously separate them. So I hope that makes sense.
0: It does. So the multi-age instruction, you mentioned the teacher training. This doesn't strike me. I don't know, I guess, but doesn't strike me as something that is maybe taught to in our teachers' colleges. Where, where would a teacher learn how to do multi-age instruction if this was something that was attractive for one reason or another to, to a school?
1: It's a great question. So there are resources out there. There are a few pretty, pretty good books on multi-age instruction. I will also say that it's not, um, I mean, it's not uncommon. I mean, you, you can get training and there are, are different groups that do training uh, around multi-age instruction. I think, I think this is the other reason why we we wrote the book is because I we wanted to make sure people understood that this is a really solid pedagogical approach, if you will. Yes. It's something that can be extremely successful and students can learn to a really high level doing this. It's not something where you have to feel um, like it's substandard, like kids aren't receiving what they need. Um, and so... Obviously, making sure that teachers are well trained and you're delivering on, again, those outcomes that you want to see um, really helps to make that case. And, and I just always say hypothetically, they're, they're not hypothetically, for real. There are, um, you know, micro schools in in wealthier areas where parents will pay $15,000, $20,000 a year to have their kids go to a multi-age instructional classroom. So I share that just because it, it is seen as something that's viable and, and really can be successful if done correctly.
0: It's, it's not a desperate move. It's like there's real benefits there. Yeah. And exactly I, right. I was really struck in reading that. And so I've kind of shared with some people here in South Dakota and everybody's like, oh, yeah, the country school. I don't know if that phrase rings a bell, but around here, the, the one room schoolhouse or maybe two rooms called it the country school. You know, there's a right. school every couple of miles and the farm kids walk to it and there are even some old timers around here that actually went to country school. You know, I think they maybe they ended up shutting down in the 60s is when they kind of came to an end but um there you know and people have a really fond memory not just memories but actually real uh formation benefits. Um so yeah, really uh just fascinating concept and to see you kind of articulate the benefits was great. Yeah. One of um one of the things that is unique about not unique, but it's different than the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, um, which I would imagine has a mix of sort of uh, both suburban but also urban. We're we're by and large rural here in South Dakota. Um, you know, can you maybe offer some thoughts on how rural communities that don't currently have a Catholic school for one reason or another, maybe they used to have one but didn't have the attitudinal shift um, they didn't, you know, so it's now they don't, but I think, you know, parent, parents are more and more interested in what are my options for one reason or another, the public school isn't working out. We've got some great public schools in South Dakota. So I don't mean that as a knock, it, any creative thoughts on, on how smaller communities might apply some of these ideas in their own circumstances.
1: Sure. Um, and just to, and I think this is really, really important that um, there are successful micro schools out there and I don't even know that they would have called themselves micro schools. We in, in the source of doing the book and we have some some of them listed, but um, we found schools that had 80 students They've had 80 students for 40 years and they've just and most of those schools are in rural areas. Yeah, I think Idaho and some parts of Michigan. And um, and so I think those are lessons for all of us. That's where we can learn a lot. And what I've I've actually said is uh, in L.A., for example, we do have a number of urban schools. And if you know anything about our our national picture, you know, urban Catholic schools have really been the ones that have suffered a lot uh, with enrollment declines and closures. And if you think about school size, they share a lot with those rural schools in terms of numbers. So I think there's some some learnings that can absolutely take place in terms of your question and how can a community maybe think about this? One of the things I think the COVID-19 pandemic has, has taught us is um, is really the power of, of virtual and, and how we can connect. Now, I don't want to at all say that we everyone needs to be virtual. I know people are sick of it and there's, there's frustration sometimes with it. But I think if we start to, to think about how can we utilize that as a tool to help leverage what we're doing, um, and let me give you some examples. So if you have a small community, maybe, and, and you can only get 50 to 80 kids within that school community, are there ways that you can increase the service population by making some aspects of that virtual? And so maybe students who really can't travel as far, um, maybe, maybe they can access that remotely. And is that something that you could start to think about? The other piece that I think virtual can do for you is it helps to increase the quality of your curricular um, offerings. So you might have a small uh, school community, and let's say it's a high school, and your students want to take some high-level AP class, high AP physics or something, and and you just can't access that because the school's small and getting a teacher and figuring all that out. Well, can you access that? online um, and and get the content delivered and maybe then have a facilitator in the classroom to help support the students and how they learn. And so I think these <laughs> these tools are out there, these tools are available today and it really just involves some creativity. And And really what we would tell school leaders to think about is what does your community want and what is your community really, what would they wanna see within the school community? And then how can you help deliver um, deliver what they want in an effective way.
0: So one of the things that's this phrase in in your bio really struck me um, as what you're doing now with your current work, this master's degree in educational leadership, helping these leaders learn to build robust Catholic school communities. That's just a really, I I like that phrase. It's very full. What is a, what does a robust Catholic micro school
1: look like? You know, it's such a great question, Chris, because what I would say about that description and people might hear robust Catholic school communities and picture a, a burgeoning full Catholic school with a wait list and which which obviously would be a robust Catholic school. But part of this paradigm shift that we're talking about we want people to be able to think of a micro school also as being a robust catholic school Uh, a school full of life full of faith uh, full of people committed to the church committed to learning full of students who are engaged um, in the classroom and extracurricular activities full of teachers who care and are committed to the students you know a robust catholic school community is is not really about a number right it's about people and it's about the culture that's present and Mm. how and how that energy and the faith and the sense of community um, is really um, strong throughout. And so I think I love the fact that you you highlighted that because it also speaks to this idea that we talked about at the beginning that I hope people who think about Catholic schools don't look at enrollment and think, oh, that can't be robust because it could be robust, even if it doesn't have enrollment, maybe uh, at the level that you, you think it should have.
0: Well, no, I like that. One of the reasons I'm so struck by it, too, is just that. I mean, this has been a th- a theme kind of throughout our our conversation. But in South Dakota, we're kind of a, a small, simple, humble, and that's that's like there's such a spiritual truth in like the littleness of Bethlehem, the littleness of Nazareth. So to see you you describe just sort of littleness. I mean, it's in the title of the book, right? Great greatness in smallness. Just that littleness can actually be vibrant and attractive and life giving, informative. Really, really beautiful. So what does the future hold? I know there's a lot, lot of dust in the air, so to speak, with Catholic education right now. The pandemic, it seems, has proven um favorable for Catholic education. A lot of Catholic schools really did their very, very best to serve children in person through the pandemic, which um that was a that was a tough call. I mean, there was a lot of political contentiousness over opening and closing and to make that tough call. That's like, the, that's a, a burden, but also a duty of leadership. So good on them. And, and so we've seen some, an enrollment boost, but as you look at, let's say the next 50 years or the next hundred years, we're going to be those habits, features, virtues, if you will, that are going to help us thrive, not just in the numbers ways, but, um, what are going to be those defining features of Catholic education in the next fifty to a hundred years?
1: So it's a great question. And fifty to hundreds, hard to think through. But I can let, let me tell you about the next maybe ten. Sure. And then I'll and then I'll, and then maybe think about this a little bit even in a little bit longer term. Um again, I talked about my work in LA. We had this vision of growth. We wanted to get, you know, we had 80, we have a 75, 80,000 kids, you know, when, when I was there and we used to, I a hundred thousand kids, we want a hundred thousand kids by 2020 or hundred thousand kids by 2030. We wanted that growth. I think about it from a national perspective. We have about 1.6 million kids in Catholic schools today. And, you know, let's get to 2 million, you know, let's, let's set a big audacious goal and try to go reach that. That was the thinking. Well, You know, one of the things after working on the micro schools uh, for a number of years and really thinking this through more clearly, we've had this period of decline, you know, about 20 years of consistent decline nationwide in in overall enrollment. Now, this year, uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've had our first increase. Um, We're still not up to kind of where we were pre-pandemic, but but that's hopeful news. But I keep thinking if if we went to just flash forward to 2030 today, And we told people who are committed to Catholic schools across the country that we're going to be flat. We'll still have 1.6 million kids enrolled in 2030. Most everybody would be doing backflips. They'd be ecstatic about that because of this historic decline that we've had almost consistently for the last couple of decades. Well, if you think about that in light of micro schools, that's really what we're talking about. Can we start to think about sustaining where we are, Hmm. kind of stopping the decline, if you will, um, and then what I would say the next step is and this gets to your question and we can talk a little bit about what that might look like but then maybe you can start to think about can we grow can we start to add can we build schools can we can we think about growth? but in some ways you know when you have a hole and you're digging a hole it sometimes say you got to stop digging first right before you can start to, to fill that and I think that might that's kind of the concept here of, of the micro school in terms of, of the next 50 to 100 years, I mean what I would hope for is and this is a little bit political, uh, um, but thinking about school choice, for example, and and more state and, and federal dollars going to support uh, <laughs> religious based schools. I think that's not a panacea, by the way. I don't think that solves all of our problems. Yes. But I do think that's a justice question in terms of families who truly can't afford it. And, yes. uh, and, I, think, and I think that's really, really important for Catholic educators to talk about. And I think that piece could be a could be a big part of our, our overall I don't want to say resurgence, but I think a, a revitalization of Catholic schools over that period of time.
0: Well, the, the show is called faith and politics. So we're allowed to talk about, and I'm, you're totally permitted to endorse ESAs on this program. And that's yeah. a, you know, that's a big part of the conversation why I wanted to have you on. Cause we talk about ESAs here and people say, well, I don't have any options. Even if I have an ESA, I don't have anywhere to go. So the question is, do we actually, can we think creatively? And if we've got some actually financial uh, freedom, can we, op- can we actually open smaller schools? Right. You know, it's a great, it's a great question. Okay. Kevin, we've got about a minute and a half uh, left here. One of the, one of the things I'm curious about for people that are really desiring to think creatively, um, any books, resources that you'd recommend? You know, I obviously, uh, I think your book is great. That's something that I've got a copy. I'll loan it out to anybody that wants it, or they can go online and buy a copy too from the NCEA, but any other books or resources that people might uh, look into?
1: Sure. You know, um, you're going to put me on the spot with books, but what I would say is this, um, those people listening who, who can, you know, I would set your Google alerts for innovation, uh, innovative schools, Yes. Innovative, innovative Catholic schools. There are a lot of innovations going on. We've talked about micro schools, but there's dual language immersion and there's STEM and there, there are a lot of approaches that, that different Catholic schools are thinking about around the country My firm belief is that our success will rest on two pillars. One is leadership, which I'm actually uh, obviously involved with now here at Notre Dame. And the other is innovation. And innovation is simply thinking, how do we continually improve upon our past performance? And so it's it's never settling for the status quo. It's always saying to ourselves, we've had some success. Let's celebrate that. Now, how do we get better? And so I think, and there are things going on out there and we should be willing to learn from other other systems and obviously other Catholic schools. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's just, I think, an obligation of a Catholic school educator today, because uh, there's a lot of opportunity to, to be creative and, and do, do new things.
0: Well, well, wonderful. Dr. Kevin Baxter, thank you so much for joining us on Faith and Politics.
1: Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thanks.
0: And thank you as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. Until next time, live well.